Welcome to AI with Sally, a monthly podcast that takes a closer look at some of the month's most interesting technology stories in artificial intelligence and machine learning. We'll hear about the latest in hardware and software that has a big impact on the world of AI. I'm your host, Sally Ward-Foxton. Coming up in this month's show, we have a brain-inspired computer with the equivalent amount of brain power as a hamster. And we'll get an update from the CEO of British AI chip unicorn, Graphcore. But first... Wouldn't it be great if your devices could recognise different sounds? Whether it's recognising a baby crying, glass breaking or a smoke alarm going off, it's not hard to imagine use cases for machine learning systems that can understand the context of their surroundings. Last month, I took a trip up to Cambridge to visit a company called Audio Analytic. They're a software company developing sound recognition models. Their model, AuditoryNet, is trained to recognize a large number of audio events and acoustic scenes. The reason for the visit was to see a demo the company has built, which really epitomizes the state of TinyML today. TinyML is the name given to machine learning applications that run on really small devices like microcontrollers. This particular demo was recognizing the sound of a baby crying, and it was running on an ARM Cortex-M0 Plus device, which is right at the small end of the microcontroller spectrum. Joining me on the show is Audio Analytic VP Technology, Dominic Binks, to tell us about it. Hi, Dominic. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Sound recognition isn't a straightforward application. How did you manage to run it on something quite so small as this microcontroller? In the years that we've been doing this, and uh, we have a number of years of running on microcontrollers, what we've discovered is that sound recognition is dramatically improved with more data. So every time we add more data, we tend to find that uh, models uh, that get um, generated um, are better at generalizing. They've got more examples. They make smaller models. And we found that this is a big impact on the both the accuracy and the size of the model. Um, it, it stands to reason because there are more examples you're presenting um, give more opportunity for the models to learn the important features while discarding the unimportant ones. When you have less data, uh, the systems can't identify which bits are important, and so uh, they tend to retain more information than they need. There are areas where we're doing uh, low-level code optimizations and uh, some uh, tools and techniques that are quite widespread in terms of um, compact coding and the like, um, where we are compressing uh, the code size down and getting it down onto the microcontrollers as well as uh, um, in other optimizations. But in reality, the model size is the biggest driver for both uh, memory and MIPS, and that's obviously where you fight the biggest problems within um, a microcontroller. Now, the data labels are a big part of it as well, aren't they? Labeling and sound recognition is a vital task uh, that has to happen, has to be done carefully. Uh, we label um, at three layers. Uh, we call them fine, episodic, and weak. Um, weak labeling is simply uh, a file, an audio file contains these sounds. Um, fine labeling uh, is the one that's the most valuable to machine learning in that what you do is you label the distinct sound components. So taking uh, the example of something like a smoke alarm, it's a very simple sound, uh, or a CO, they sound similar. 
uh, they would typically have a series of beeps uh, that are spaced out in time. And you, if you mark the beeps and not the gaps in between them, then the machine learning system will learn that the beeps are an important part of this and start to detect those. Um, if you take a baby cry, it's a more complex sound. Uh, there are elements of the sound, such as where the baby uh, will have a gap, potentially, or there'll be an intake of breath. And there are other noises as well that the baby may make whilst crying that lead to... Um, uh, but they're part of the sounds. So you want to remove those because they aren't really a part of the baby cry. If you do include them in the model training, what you end up finding happening is that your model starts to learn that these sounds are part of baby cry, but in fact, there are parts of other sounds as well. And so that uniqueness of the baby cry sound is, is lost. So that's what fine labeling is. And episodic is best again explained by either a smoke alarm or a baby cry. Um, if you imagine a, uh, a, a baby crying, there is a point at which you hear the squeal. Maybe the child is asleep and they uh, have some kind of colic or something and they, they might, uh, might cry out. But it isn't really a baby cry. It's not something that you want, want to notify a parent or a carer about. But after a period of time, that becomes a notifiable event, if you like, that you, something you want to tell the parent or the carer about. So you mark the period in which the baby is crying as a single episode um, and that we use as well to identify when we might be able to report on a baby cry, not just detect the sound of a baby cry. In general, the um, machine learning system responds very, very quickly to the particular sounds, but we don't necessarily inform people until we've gathered a little bit more evidence and, and time of uh, uh, to... Um, be certain about the uh, sound that we're detecting. There's a lot of work going on around speech recognition and natural language processing at the moment. How is sound recognition different from speech recognition in machine learning terms? Sound recognition is different from speech recognition in, in the following ways. In speech, uh, essentially the, the, the speech recognizers have sort of two stages of our machine learning model. There's a, a, a sound part and then a language part. And the language part helps to inform the sound part by saying that certain sequences are not actually viable. We have grammar that structures our language, and so certain sequences of words make no sense. They would never occur. So that's not a valid reading of uh, that particular sound clip. Um, occasionally, they get them wrong, obviously, because certain sounds sound similar enough to, to, to give rise to a different likelihood. But in reality, certain word sequences are just not, not valid sentences. They're not likely to be uttered. Um, uh, with sound, um, it's a little bit different because sound, first of all, doesn't fit in the same kinds of frequency ranges necessarily as speech. Some does, some doesn't. Because it's different, it includes all sorts of other sounds that have no bearing at all on speech. And more importantly, there's no model for how sounds can co-occur. There are some things that can co-occur, um, but in practice, just because you had a window broken doesn't mean the smoke alarm won't sound or the dog won't bark or the baby won't cry. And so all these things could co-occur. They could happen in an in order. They could happen in the reverse order, all of which is equally likely. What is true is that some sounds are very, very unlikely. Windows breaking is a very, very uncommon sound. You don't hear it very much. So you have to deal with the fact that when you train the model, 
before. The model has to get used to hearing glass break sounds, for example. But actually, in reality, it's very, very unlikely to ever hear them. So um, you need to deal with that un lack of likelihood, like a thing called prior probabilities. The other factor in speech recognition is that there are a range of techniques, audio processing techniques, and I think you have things like automatic gain control and beamforming. Again, for sound recognition purposes, this has the effect of introducing distortions in the audio path that we see, and they look to us like something unnatural has happened. So, for example, if you imagine a scenario where which is perfectly reasonable that uh, maybe you've got a security camera, it's on, it's nighttime, it's generally quiet, and someone drops a teaspoon. Because AGC might be active, if AGC is active, then what you're going to see is the AGC will suddenly kick in and boost the level of that. And suddenly that teaspoon, which is actually a relatively quiet sound, it's just very loud in the context, will suddenly become blown up and very, very loud. Uh, and so for us, it's really important not to have those kinds of processing. Uh, and other processing steps, such as noise reduction and background sound reduction, those kinds of techniques, can help in some cases, but not in others. So it's really important to understand with sound recognition what the sounds are that you're trying to identify and therefore what things do make sense to do, what things don't make sense to do, um, and how that will then interact with the machine learning system. Um, so there's a variety of different areas in terms of both the audio processing and in the machine learning itself where sound recognition is really very different from doing uh, speech and language processing. Tell us about potential real-world applications that will open up now that we can do accurate sound recognition, in particular now that we can do it with minimal compute, even in, say, battery-powered devices. There are, there are a wide range of, of uses of sound recognition in the real world. We use sound a lot to determine a lot of things about us. I mean, you can imagine fairly simple things like the ones we've talked about, the safety and security values, such as things like smoke alarms going off in an empty house. Obviously, there's, there's something you might want to look at, a window breaking. Uh, then you've got the sort of slightly softer ones, such as um, uh, baby cry and dog bark. So you can know whether your dog is barking a lot. Uh, baby cry if your baby's, baby's crying a bit like a sort of slightly more intelligent um, baby monitor. Um, there are also um, interesting applications within... Um, for example, um, mobile phones that you can um, tag uh, media as you're recording it with the signs of sounds that are around you. So you might have birdsong or laughter or um, shouting um, or singing, things like this, that, that could then be useful to search the media at a later point. In terms of other applications, you can imagine um, there are certain things you could do in um, health systems and healthcare such that you can detect the sounds of coughing, sneezing, sniffling, those kinds of things and, and use that information. Um, and then obviously things like um, uh, true wireless headphones, things like that, that you could actually do um, things like dynamic noise uh, cancellation. You can adjust it for the sounds that you're in the sound environment that you're, you're kind of in so you don't have to interact with the device uh, and smooth filter transitions that way. You could also um, use it to uh, interrupt, uh, such as uh, hearing a bicycle bell as you're running, for example, and it cuts through so that you can hear that that bicycle bell has happened and that someone's going to come past you uh, at the time. Um, so there's a range of options that you could think of, of of applications where sound recognition can either provide a mechanism to do something that wasn't previously possible or 
more, more perhaps more commonly, augment an experience that we already have, but just make it either better or easier to interact with or, or more useful. I mean, in the case of, uh, of, of running with, with uh, wireless headphones, um, I live out in a village somewhere and I really wouldn't want to run with headphones on because cars come along the road quite quickly um, and uh, I wouldn't want to not hear them. So you can imagine that you might have different scenarios there where you actually want to hear about things that are happening around you, but they're not have that happening all the time. So you can adjust the, the sensitivity essentially of the, the headphones according to the environment. Thanks so much, Dominic. You can read my article about audio analytic with more technical details on the demo at etimes.com. In the news recently has been one of the biggest brain-inspired computing systems ever built. Earlier this month, the story broke that Intel has expanded its neuromorphic system to the equivalent of 100 million neurons. Intel's had a neuromorphic chip since 2017. It's called Loihi. And one Loihi chip is about 130,000 neurons. Just to give you a rough idea, that's about the same as an insect brain, slightly more than the poor old lobster with just 100,000. The big new system that Intel's built is 768 of these Loihi chips in a box, a five-rack unit box called Pohoiki Springs. This box has about the same number of neurons as a small mammal brain, maybe a mole rat or a hamster. Not that it's literally used to simulate rodent brains, but just to give you an idea of the computational capacity of the system. And technically, 100 million is a hamster plus 10 cockroaches, but who's counting? Now, neuromorphic hardware is designed to run neural networks, just like AI accelerators, but there's a key difference. Neuromorphic systems run spiking neural networks, which are quite different to what goes on in mainstream AI and deep learning. Here's Mike Davies, director of Intel's Neuromorphic Computing Lab. So the uh, Loihi chip has 130,000 neurons in it. Um, it's uh, the most advanced uh, neuromorphic chip uh, available today in terms of uh, the feature set it supports that's under study by uh, computational neuroscientists and uh, researchers in the, in the neuromorphic field. It has integrated learning capabilities, which means that the synapses and the connections between the neurons are always changing in the same way that uh, the connections of neurons in our brains uh, are, are changing and plastic. Um, what you'll find in the uh, deep learning domain is a, a fixation on multiply accumulators. That is the fundamental element. Um, computing floating point numbers, sometimes fixed point numbers, but often mostly floating point numbers. And it, it's all about how many max per watt or max per second you can achieve. In Loihi, we don't have a single multiply accumulator. We're solving these kinds of neuro-inspired computational problems in fundamentally a different way than the conventional neural networks that uh, you're familiar with. Now, as you'll probably know, if you follow the AI accelerator sector, a short while back, Intel bought an Israeli AI chip startup called Habana Labs, and Intel completely canned the chips it was already working on for AI in favor of Habana's architecture. But as Mike Davies explains, neuromorphic computing will not compete directly with what Habana and other parts of Intel are doing. Neuromorphic computing, on the other hand, is is not it's it's useful for a different regime, a different niche in computing than that large data supervised learning uh, uh, problem. So neuromorphic is is. And, and for example, maybe one one good differentiator you may understand is. Um, 
if you're familiar with the batch concept, so the the fact that you you uh, batch large amounts of data um, and and process those as you update the parameters of a deep learning model, you need large batch sizes. Lots of data all have labeled information associated with that to train these networks. Um, great computational cost, uh, long periods of time to to train these enormous networks. That's driving huge amount of data IO uh, bandwidth requirements, memory bandwidth requirements, because they're streaming all of this labeled data through these, these architectures to modify these weights very slowly over time, uh, billions of parameters now. Neuromorphic models are, are, are very different to that. They're processing individual data samples, the batch size one regime, we call it, um, where real world data is arriving to the chip and, and it needs to be processed right then and there with the lowest latency and the lowest power possible. So this is naturally what arises in, a, in an edge environment. And um, what, what's, what's different on the, on the edge side compared to even edge deep learning AI chips is that we're, we're also looking at models that adapt and can actually learn uh, in real time based on those individual data samples that are arriving. Uh, which, which is not what the deep learning paradigm supports very well. So, so there, you know, these are different problems that are, you know, going to uh, or different different regimes of the overall compute and AI space. Um, so they're 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 complementary and they're solving different kinds of problems. Um, neuromorphic is for more real world, real time data processing, where low latency and low power is is the premium there. And, and of course, that arises too in the data center. But it's it's again, it's a different type of problem that's being solved in the data center. It's um, you know finding the shortest path in a query for your driving directions and, and getting those driving directions immediately with the lowest possible time, and not waiting until you have a, a thousand queries that can all then be batched together and run with these kind of data parallel architectures that uh, you find in in these deep learning accelerators. So you may be wondering what this electronic rodent brain is going to be used for. Well, Intel's published some interesting work with Cornell University that uses low-EE chips in an electronic nose inspired by the biological olfactory system. This electronic nose could smell 10 different chemicals as accurately as a state-of-the-art deep learning system, but crucially, it only needs to be exposed to one training sample of each smell. The deep learning system, on the other hand, needed 3,000 samples of each smell to get the same accuracy. So they've trained it on chemicals that could be used to make explosives or narcotics to illustrate that it could be used to sniff out these chemicals in the real world. Here's the Intel researcher that worked on the system, Nabil Imam. The way we train this is we present uh, the recordings of a chemosensor array to a network of neurons that we configured in Luihi. Uh, based on the architecture of the olfactory bulb, which is the biological olfactory system. So we provide this data, we provide one sample of a given odor class. So let's say the smell of methane, we provide one sample of methane to the network and the network goes through these learning rules and creates a snapshot of methane as an internal representation of that odor. Um, we test it by then providing variants of methane. So when methane is there in a very complex odor scene, the network based on that previously learned representation of methane recalls the learned odors in the complex mixture. Um, so that's the training and inference procedure. The 
uh, distinction with deep learning is that whereas in a standard deep network, you'd have to provide all of the training samples at once and train the network in one go in a large uh, training process, this network can learn on the fly. So let's say you learn odor A, and then you provide many different samples of odor A, and it recognizes odor A. Um, and then after some point of, in time, you present another odor, odor B. And the network learns that odor B without um, rewiring the synaptic weights that represent odor A. So this is called online learning, which is how can you incorporate new information without erasing old information? And we found that this network naturally supports online learning. Um, so it can learn multiple odors in sequence um, without those odors being intercalated with one another in one training sample, in one training set. Intel has also said that it plans to build bigger neuromorphic systems in the future to mimic larger and larger brains. Just for comparison, the human brain has 86 billion neurons. It's about 650,000 Loihi chips, or about 1,000 times the size of the big system they just built, Pohuiki Springs. It's very easy to imagine a data center full of racks and racks of Loihi arrays to reach the compute capacity of the human brain. Could such a system be used for artificial general intelligence? Watch this space. I recently had the chance to catch up with the CEO of Graphcore, Nigel Toon. Graphcore is a British AI accelerator chip startup, which hit the headlines when it was valued at a billion dollars, making it a rare semiconductor unicorn. Rare outside of China, that is. The company was one of the first amongst a whole crop of startups to launch its chip, based on its proprietary intelligence processing unit architecture, which is designed especially to accelerate AI workloads in the data center. Graphcore recently completed a funding round to the tune of $150 million. So I began by asking Nigel Toon what he was planning to spend the money on. We've, we've, raised, um, we've raised over $450 million um, total so far. We've got over $300 million still in the bank. Um, we're obviously ambitious to build a large company, work with very large customers. And so, you know, having that sort of financial strength gives our customers confidence that we're going to be here um, and allows us to invest, um, you know, for this massive opportunity, uh, which is um, available to us. So, you know, it just allows us, you know, we've more than doubled the size of the company last year. Um, we'll probably grow 50% again um, this year. Um, and, you know, we, we're just able to invest um to, to sort of maximise on the opportunity that's available to us with the funding that we've raised. Okay, customers, uh, you're in, hey. I know you're in Dell Enterprise Servers, you're in the Microsoft Cloud. I get mm -hmm. the impression that a fair few of your enterprise customers so far have been in this kind of financial sector, running these big financial algorithms. Is Graphcore's hardware particularly suited to these algorithms or are they just the first sector to be ready to adopt this technology? They're one of the first ones that we've been public about. You know, we're involved in automotive, um, health, um, you know, various internet applications. But but finance was one that, you know, people stood up and, and shouted about, you know, people like Citadel, et cetera. Um, and it's interesting there. Um, if you uh, – so – 
um, in finance, one of the things people want to do is they want to understand a time sequence analysis. So something changes in the market, what impact does that then have? Some event occurs, what impact does that have over time? Um, in normal linear regression, you assume that all of the data points, all your parameters are uncorrelated. Um, they're all independent and you're looking for a sort of um, a best fit um, across those parameters. Um, in If you're trying to do time sequence analysis, you're actually looking and trying to understand the correlation. So you're looking for some um, prior and you're then looking for how that changes um, over time. Okay. Um, so, so again, our processor that has is able to hold that prior information inside the processor, and then over time you can look for how that changes. Um, you know, actually works out to be very, very efficient um, for those types of applications. But, but those, but that that concept is actually applicable in lots of time-based. Um, application so you know speech for example is yep. obviously you're trying to understand over time what's happening how it changes um, video as opposed to just image yep. um, so again you know the fact that we've been successful in finance because of those types of requirements you know is a good proxy for why our architecture will be good to help people solve some of these more complex uh, machine learning problems like video and, and voice yeah 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 are autonomous vehicles still on your roadmap? What's happening in that sector? Yeah, no, they 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 very much are. Um, I think you know what what we've seen um, across the industry is you know, there was there was a sort of a peak of optimism around autonomous cars. Yeah. Um, the perception piece people have made you know really good progress on. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that is now holding people back is the. Um, the decision making um, processes. So, you know, a car is at a junction, it's trying to work out, you know, it can see all the cars and all the people. What it's got to try and work out is what's going to happen next. Yes. Um, yes. And when's it safe to pull out? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's why, you know, most of the trials are being done in very benign um, uh, environments. Um, and, the, you know, the, the, the challenge really is how do you create these very safe decision-making um, systems that, that can you know, act safely in complex environments? And, and that's the big area that, that, you know, everybody's working on and people have sort of realized, oh, that's going to take us a bit of time to fix that. And it's also an area where people need new approaches and, and probably new hardware. And, you know, so, again, that's an area we're very actively um, involved helping some companies on, and it's a lot, a lot has even been done in the cloud because it's it's simulation levels at this point. You can't okay. drive enough miles to encounter those situations necessarily. Um, you're much better off, you know, actually s simulating them, and you know, and then you you can actually create predictable systems. Okay, but you do see graphical chips going into autonomous vehicles in the future, but just further down the line, then. Yeah. So, so um, uh, yeah, we are, we anticipate that. Yes. Okay. Um, have you gone as far as getting your automotive qualifications or anything? Uh, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, okay. I think since we last spoke, which was probably about a year ago, um, since we last spoke, there's been a lot of these AI silicon startups coming out of stealth mode, launching chips, which mm -hmm. presumably means more competition for Graphcore. Does mm -hmm. the increase in competition concern you, or is it just a signal of how healthy the market is for these chips? 
Hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think Microsoft, I'm not sure whether they've said it publicly or not, but they've certainly said it to us and, and to others that we know of that you know, they've seen over 60 companies. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and they've, they've looked at 60 companies and they've, you know, anal they've analyzed lots of different companies. They picked us out of all those companies. So that's great. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of companies out there. Um, how many of them are interesting and credible is, is another question, I think. Yep. Um, you know, I think, I think we'll, what we'll see is, um, you know, some fallout in the market over the next sort of 12, 24 months. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, some of these companies will find it harder to raise capital um, yes. as well. Yes. Um, and and so, yes, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, there's a number of these companies out there, but, you know, we basically, as we're out talking to customers, we really only see um, NVIDIA um, as, as, you know, somebody who's really active and able to deliver uh, technology today. Uh, again, since we last spoke, um, another thing I wanted to follow up on was um, the AI Accelerator Benchmark, MLPerf. That's been yeah. attracting attention in the meantime. Um, mm -hmm. I think you said a year ago you would submit results to industry benchmarks. Are you still planning to submit results? Or yeah, we will if do. Not, why we, not? <laughs> <laughs> we will do. I think, I think the problem with it is... Um, most of those benchmarks are, you know, very um, backward looking. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, they're very much looking in the rearview mirror. Um, you know, sort of by definition, they are benchmarks that were written on top of a GPU. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fact that this new architecture exists, actually it's allowing new things to happen. And we're much more focused on helping customers solve some of those new problems rather than looking backwards at, you um, you know, how we do with ResNet, for example. You know, ResNet is sort of the example that everybody shouts about, but actually there's nobody actually using ResNet anymore, very few people using ResNet. They're using ResNext and ExceptionNet and other newer types of um, networks, most of which aren't actually in um, MLPer. So, you know, we're much more focused on working with customers than we are with doing um, benchmarks. And, and again, the benchmark... You need to be quite careful because you know somebody who's got a piece of hardware and a slightly broken piece of software can maybe put a bunch of clever engineers on to to get a benchmark running, but um, doesn't mean that anybody else can pick up the technology and use it. And even you know what we see with a lot of the Nvidia um, benchmarks is that customers struggle to reproduce the results that Nvidia um, shouts about in yeah. their in their benchmarks because you know they've optimized them to a point where um, you know they're 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 not actually very general anymore. Thank you very much, Nigel Toon, for the update on Graphcore. That brings us to the end of episode one of AI with Sally. Please tune in again next month to hear more news and views on AI, machine learning, and the technologies that enable them. In the meantime, please visit eetimes.com and eetimes.eu for the latest news and analysis. AI with Sally is brought to you by AspenCore Media. The host is Sally Ward-Foxton and the producer is James Ede. Thank you for listening. Thank you.